Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut lawmakers, including the governor to U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal, all pushed for a gas tax holiday because fuel prices have spiked. In Connecticut, it's a temporary move, cutting the 25 cents per gallon tax over three months that will save the average motorist about 30 bucks. But clean transportation advocates say policymakers on the federal and local levels should do a better job talking about transportation options that cut emissions, a conversation that's not limited to just electric cars. Today, where we live, we talk about efforts in Connecticut to make electric bikes or e-bikes more affordable and accessible to everyone. It's part of a larger bill before the General Assembly. Coming up, we talk to an electric bike shop in Branford, and we hear from local bicyclists who've made the switch. And later, a UNC professor who studies alternative transportation joins us to talk more about e-bikes and bike infrastructure. Now, we want to hear from you. Do you have an e-bike or want one? Anthony tweeted, e-bikes, much lower life cycle emissions than even an electric vehicle. Never stuck in traffic, e-bikes really make a bike commute no sweat and predictable transport for all abilities. High-voltage home charger not needed. You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Joining us first on Zoom is State Senator Will Haskell. He co-chairs the General Assembly's Transportation Committee. He's also a member of the Legislature's Environment and Energy and Technology Committees. Senator Haskell, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me back, Lucy. Great to be with you. So the, the topic of e-bikes part of a larger proposal known as uh, SB4. And so can you talk a little bit about how this legislation is different from the Transportation Climate Initiative Bill? Absolutely. So it's been such a pleasure working with uh, my colleague, Senator Cohen, who chairs the Environment Committee. Uh, I serve as the Senate chair of the Transportation Committee, and we think it's impossible to talk about transportation without recognizing its impact on the environment. And it's impossible to talk about the environment without without recognizing that the transportation sector is the greatest contributor to our emissions crisis. So we put forward SB4, also known as Connecticut's Clean Air Act, and it does a variety of things. It invests in electric school buses. It modernizes traffic signals so that our constituents spend less time sitting in traffic. It improves the cheaper rebate program so that more families, especially middle and low income families, can qualify to purchase an electric vehicle. And of course, pertinent to today's conversation, it adds electric bicycles to that cheaper program, creating a rebate that makes these bikes just a little bit more affordable. Now, to your question about how this is different than TCI, uh, the Transportation Climate Initiative, I crisscrossed the state trying to convince my colleagues that we ought to enact a cap and invest program to limit carbon emissions and invest in green infrastructure. And what I heard again and again was that the revenue component was quite controversial, but the expenditures themselves were really popular. People wanted to invest in green infrastructure. They just, they just didn't like the method that we were using to raise the money. So we 
took them up on that feedback. And we found other ways. We found state and federal resources to cobble together to fund this transportation modernization, this green infrastructure that will help to make sure kids in the future can breathe clean air. And that's what SB4 is. So the funding mechanisms for these uh, clean transportation programs, some of them which you've mentioned, uh, relates, uh, relies on, what, billions of dollars in federal funding. And so I was wondering if you can talk more about that. Yeah, it's really a, a mix of state and federal funding. Take electric school buses, for example. I think most people believe that kids shouldn't breathe in dangerous diesel exhaust every day as they travel to and from school. Electric school buses are already out in the field in Connecticut, but we desperately need more of them. And let's be honest, they're a little bit expensive. So uh, President Biden's Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act created a $5 billion competitive grant program to electrify school buses. And $5 billion sounds like a lot of money, but you think about all 50 states and hundreds of thousands of school buses deployed every morning, that money is going to get eaten up quickly. In order to make sure that Connecticut is a competitive applicant, in order to make sure that our school districts and companies like DATCO have the resources they need to apply and be first in line for this funding, we're putting forward $10 million of state assistance, matching funds, so that Connecticut uh, can provide a 20, 30, perhaps a 50% match and receive our fair share of federal dollars. We can go program by program as to how it's funded, but by and large, we're utilizing state resources to make sure that we take advantage of this historic moment where the federal government is investing more in in infrastructure and more in green infrastructure than we've ever seen in our history. When we talk infrastructure, uh, what about, uh, you know, the uh, concern about uh, finding chargers around our state? And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Absolutely. So um, we know that there are a variety of reasons that people are sticking with their internal combustion engines and not going to electric. One of those reasons is cost, and that's why we are strengthening this rebate program. But another reason is range anxiety. Folks are worried that they won't have an opportunity to charge their vehicle where they live and where they work. We're trying to change that by uh, expanding charger access in rural communities and urban communities alike. We want to make sure that no one is left behind in this transition. And right now, more than a third of Connecticut residents, myself included, live in multifamily housing. They live in a condo or an apartment that they rent. So we want to follow the lead of Florida and New Jersey and New York and California by passing what's called right to charge legislation. That's contained in SB4. And it says that uh, condo owners and tenants, they, they too can install electric charging infrastructure. They have to pay for it themselves, but a landlord can unreasonably deny them that access to charging. We've got to make sure that no one is left behind in this really exciting uh, transition. Mm. Uh, you mentioned it's exciting and, you know, with uh, landlords and others having to invest also uh, their own money, uh, there are rebates available. But can we talk about how you encourage more businesses to see this as something worth investing on the front end? Sure. So let's take a look at one small section of the bill, which is medium and heavy duty trucks. These account for just 6% of the traffic on Connecticut's roadways, but they account for nearly 60 60- of our NOx emissions. They are directly contributing to the health crisis that we see in urban communities that are directly adjacent to major highways. Higher rates of asthma in Bridgeport and Hartford and New Haven, that's not a coincidence. It's because of the uh, major emissions that are coming from all vehicles, but especially those dangerous emissions coming from medium and heavy duty trucks. Governor Lamont proposed legislation that came out of the Environment Committee, something I, I, I was proud to vote for. And it establishes stronger emission standards for businesses. 
that's the the stick approach. I'm a believer that you also need the carrot. And that's why SB4 contains a voucher program to help businesses with the cost of purchasing more fuel-efficient vehicles and purchasing electric, medium, and heavy-duty trucks and purchasing the charging equipment that's necessary to uh, make sure these vehicles are ready to be on the roads every day. So there are a lot of different areas where we're trying to make it possible for businesses to make the transition in addition to families. And I'll just give one more example. We keep talking about the cheaper rebate program, how Uh, We're going to make it easier to qualify if you live in an environmental justice community. We're going to deepen the subsidy for purchasing an electric vehicle. We're also going to make business fleets eligible because actually those are the cars that do the most number of miles traveled in Connecticut. It's taxi companies that are looking to go electric that ultimately have been locked out of of the rebate program for too many years. And SB4 would change that too. You're hearing State Senator Will Haskell here on Where We Live as we talk about a a clean transportation bill, a lot of different proposals under SB4, including e-bikes, electric bikes. We'll be talking about that in just a couple of minutes. But if you have a question, you can join us, 888-720-9677. Senator Haskell is co-chair of the General Assembly's Transportation Committee. Uh, Tim's calling in from Hamden. Tim, what's your question? Hi. Hi. my slightly different perspective, uh, there are hundreds of thousands of seniors need transportation also. I'm someone who has ridden a bike to work on very narrow roads and everything like that, but many seniors don't have the stability to ride a, a bike. They certainly could use three-wheel bikes, electric bikes, or even the small uh, you know, scooter things, Cushman carts. I mean, people in Florida are used to having golf carts and stuff around their their neighborhoods and everything like that. But there are really uh, tens of thousands of of elderly people who would like to have some sort of reliable transportation to go to the grocery store and everything like that. Um, So I just wanted to put that in. I know um, senior issues are often neglected, you know, for the fun idea of uh, young people riding electric bikes. But what about seniors? I'll hang up and take the answer off the air, okay? Well, Tim, thank you for your comments. Uh, and Senator Haskell, we're going to be hearing from some e-bike users in our state in just a couple of minutes. But I wonder if you can respond because, you know, electric bikes, from my understanding, uh, can also assist uh, people who may have trouble riding uh, a traditional uh, bike. What can you tell us? Sure. Let me just say a few things. First of all, thank you so much for that question, sir. Um, SB4, the Clean Air Act, it's really about giving folks options. For years and decades, really, Connecticut's transportation infrastructure has been oriented around one option, and that's take uh, driving a car. That's going to continue to be a, a popular mode of transportation, no doubt about it. But it's time that we recognize that there ought to be more options, options for seniors maybe who can no longer drive and want to take public transit. It's time to make sure that our rail system is faster than it was 50, 60, 70 years ago. It's time to invest in electric bikes. It's time to make sure that our roadways are walkable by investing in sidewalks. So this isn't about prescribing, uh, this this legislation, I should say, isn't about prescribing one method of transportation as the best or the only option. It's about giving folks a menu of opportunities as to how they get from point A to point B safely, most importantly, and secondarily, in a manner that um, makes our climate crisis better, not worse, that, that does not increase carbon emissions, but in fact, uh, you know, is, is a green way to travel from point A to point B. 
The other uh, thing that I just wanted to to point out with regard to e-bikes is you mentioned it's for folks of varying abilities, and I can personally attest that that's true. I don't own an e-bike myself, but I recently had the opportunity to join Congressman Himes uh, for a portion of his bike ride across Connecticut. And let's just say that uh, Congressman Himes is is more of an athlete than I am. I knew that if I was going to be able to keep up with him, from uh, we left from the beaches of Westport in my district, and I joined him all the way through uh, Newtown, Connecticut. If I was going to be able to keep up with him, I needed an electric bicycle in order to get up some of those uh, very hilly roads in Redding and Easton, Connecticut. All that to say that uh, I can personally attest that e-bikes help those of us who are of, of differing abilities. You know, some of the main feedback that we hear as to why people don't want to take a bike is, is hills, it's lengthy distances, it's working up a sweat. E-bikes really help to diminish all three of those barriers. I, I can tell you that firsthand. Maureen's calling in from Manchester. Maureen, what's your experience with an e-bike? Hi. Uh, well, I was I was born with severe hip dysplasia, and um, as a result of surgery that was done when I was a child, I have a non-functioning left hip. So I really wasn't able to ride a regular bike. And um, I, when I was younger, I could, but as I got older, it just I couldn't turn my leg anymore. So um, when I learned about e-bikes, I gave it a try. I still needed an accommodation, but I found an accommodation called the pendulum pedal. And that's, you know, the pedal is usually at the tip of the stem on the wheel. So I just moved it down. But my left hip isn't really contributing to pedaling, which is why the e-bike is necessary because it has the pedal assist. So it's been, it's been an amazing experience for me to be able to ride a bike again. And, you know, I, I, at my previous job, I rode it to work uh, because I was very close. Um, I'm a little farther now, and I can't bring my e-bike on a bus. So um, I'm driving occasionally when I go into the office. But I, I do want to um, expand, and hopefully when they could get the whole East Coast Greenway connected, I'll be able to ride my bike to work again. Thank you, Maureen, for calling in. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Senator Haskell, SB4, what's in it uh, to make uh, e-bikes more affordable and accessible to residents? So we know that a lot of folks are really eager to purchase an e-bike, but there's a barrier of affordability, right? The, the fact of the matter is there's a lot of families in Connecticut that can't afford uh, any vehicle at all. And when they look at the price of an e-bike, they're, uh, they've got some sticker shock, especially when it comes to purchasing those cargo uh, e-bikes that can you know, carry groceries uh, back from the store that can uh, allow them to drop their kids off at school. We know that a lot, of, a lot of folks are using this as a replacement of vehicles, not for maybe all trips, but for many of them. I was pretty fascinated to learn during our public hearing that 56% of car trips are four miles or less. So e-bikes are a valuable, a, a plausible replacement on those trips. Anyways, SB4 uh, creates a $500 rebate for e-bikes that cost up to $3,000. So this is going to help to reduce the cost just a little bit and make it affordable, not just for um, higher income families, but hopefully for low and middle income families as well. We wanted to get another perspective. Uh, Kate Rosen joins us on the phone. She's a Woodbridge, Connecticut resident, and she actually owns an e-cargo bike. Kate, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you know why uh, you made the switch and, and what it's been like for you. 
Um, I purchased my electric cargo bike in 2019. Um, I had been interested in switching my car commute to work to a bike, but I have asthma. And so I needed um, the little bit of extra help from the motor to be able to get up some of our notorious Connecticut hills. Mm. And you mentioned uh, this is um, something that has helped you. And so I'm wondering if you can talk more about the the difference between the e-bike and the e-cargo bike. Absolutely. So um, a typical e-bike, they both have an e-bike and an e-cargo bike. They both have a motor and pedal assist, which you can set at different levels. The difference um, between a regular bike and a cargo bike is the cargo bikes are really meant to be car replacers, as Senator Haskell mentioned earlier. Um, I'm able to put my nine-year-old daughter on the back. I'm able to move groceries. Um, I went to an event once, and I actually brought my own folding table on the back of the e-bike. So, I mean, it's it's really kind of a minivan, um, but on two wheels. And so do you feel safe when you're on your e-bike? You know, so often when we, we have these conversations uh, on the show uh, for people who are avid cyclists versus those who might just take their bike out on the weekend and, and do a rail trail, you know, you see the headlines with pedestrian fatalities increasing in our state. That includes, and also nationwide, that includes cyclists. And so I'm wondering when you're on the e-cargo bike, you know, what is that experience like, Kate? Um, so the electric cargo bikes, get up to speed faster than, you know, a typical bike. And I think the biggest part of that is that it's a confidence booster. So when you're waiting at a light, if you're, you know, in an urban area, you're able to get up to speed faster and get through intersections faster. Um, They're also a bigger footprint than a typical um, road bike. And so cars are more likely to see you because it's just a bigger bike. Um, and so I do feel confident in our roads, but I think we're building the plane as we fly it in terms of tackling road safety generally in the state. And so these things all work together. You're also, you've also been working to raise awareness about SB4. We heard Senator Haskell talk a little bit about this rebate program. And so I'm wondering your take on um, you know, what the state can do to make e-bikes more affordable and accessible. I'm a huge fan of SB4. Um, I think we have a great program here in Connecticut, the Cheaper Program, which has been up to this point exclusively focused on electric vehicles. But as Senator Haskell mentioned, you know, not everyone can afford an electric car or in a lot of areas wants to have the burden of car ownership. And so being able to add in another mode of transportation and include more people in our electric future, I think is a great thing. Mm. When we talk about um, communities that are impacted, uh, especially in our state, um, and then low to to moderate income uh, families, you know, how does this rebate program um, help them? Because my understanding is some of these these bikes are pretty expensive. Um, it gives them an, uh, a way to get a bike in a, with a discount. Um, we also are not giving up hope on a federal rebate at some point as well. Um, but these bikes typically range anywhere from $750 up to, you know, the very, very high end $10,000. And so $500 off of a bike that comes in at, you know, in that lower range is a big dent. Um, in communities that rely on public transportation, This is an excellent add-on to be able to give people autonomy over their movement in their communities. You don't have to worry about being stuck in traffic if you need to go get a kid. You know, you can get to your grocery store. Um, These are all really great things um, that we should have. (laughs) 
Uh, Senator Haskell, is there any uh, movement or talk of maybe increasing these uh, proposed caps or even the rebate uh, given uh, so individuals, you know, within a certain income, uh, it makes it more attainable for them? Well, we are asking the DEEP, the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, to prioritize the deployment of these rebates in environmental justice communities. And for those who aren't familiar with the term, these are the communities that are most overburdened by air pollution and see direct uh, negative health impacts as a result of that pollution. So we're likely to see a prioritization of those rebates uh, in in these areas. In terms of uh, possibilities of increasing the rebate, I think that that's certainly a, a conversation worth having. The first step is getting this across the finish line, demonstrating a record of success, and then hopefully it'll be easier to build upon the program. That's exactly what's happening with the cheaper program as it relates to electric vehicles. It's been in place for a few years. Representative Lamar, my co-chair, my fantastic co-chair in the Transportation Committee helped to get it started. And now we're returning to that program a few years later to try to make it better, more accessible, uh, more, more widespread in terms of its uptake. Uh, Before we went on the air, we were talking about how this is a short legislative session. And so where does this bill stand now? You know, what what are your hopes that this can get past the the finish line in such a short period of time? Well, I'm glad you asked. The bill is through the Transportation Committee. I believe we had even some bipartisan support, which is tremendously exciting. But we are a long way off from this uh, really ambitious plan becoming law. The next step is to get it called for a vote in the Senate and then called for a vote in the House of Representatives. I'm so pleased that we have over 50 co-sponsors and perhaps your listeners will go online to find out if their state representative and if their state senator is a co-sponsor. If not, uh, maybe you'll give them a call to let them know that it's something that interests you. I can tell you as a legislator, a handful of calls from constituents about a particular issue, it makes all the difference and can help a bill like this get across the finish line. Lucy, I feel like we're in in an exciting moment for SB4 and the Connecticut Clean Air Act, because I know a lot of my constituents, they're filling up their tanks at the pump and saying, okay, what are my other options? Maybe they're ready to go electric because not just of the environmental concerns, but increasingly they're seeing that unaffordable and unpredictable oil prices are having an impact on their family's budget. Maybe they're ready to transition to an e-bike for all or at least some of their local trips. That's why I think we're seeing more and more excitement around this bill. Well, before we let Kate Rosen go, Kate, there for people who want to actually maybe test an e-bike, there's actually an opportunity coming up next week. Can you tell us about it briefly? Absolutely. So um, next Wednesday, between 11 and 1 p.m., anyone who's interested in trying an e-bike will be having an e-bike demo event at the Capitol. Um, we've got e-bike retailers, um, bike shops from all over the state of Connecticut who are going to be bringing up different types of e-bikes to try. Um, and excitingly, we have several e-bike users who will also be bringing their bikes. So you'll get to see what a setup looks like for someone who's using these bikes on a daily basis to move children, groceries, etc. Well, Kate, thank you for joining us again from Woodbridge. We appreciate it. Thank you. Also with us, State Senator Will Haskell. Senator Haskell, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me, Lucy. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, got an e-bike or thinking about getting one? Again, we're going to talk more about this transportation option that's gaining interest in our state. You can join us too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Policymakers offer hefty subsidies to encourage consumers to buy electric cars. What about electric bicycles, also known as e-bikes and e-cargo bikes? There was an e-bike tax credit last fall, part of the federal Build Back Better Act, which stalled in the Senate. But Bloomberg City Lab reports the proposed e-bike credit was, quote, puny. Only individuals making less than 82000 would qualify for an e-bike credit capped at $900. And Congress made e-bikes that cost more than 4000 ineligible for credit. City Lab says that eliminated almost all e-cargo bikes. Demand is still there. Electric Co. reports sales for electric bikes have skyrocketed, growing 16 times faster than general cycling from July 2020 to July of last year. And most daily car trips average four miles or less. That's according to the League of American Bicyclists. So the idea of using an electric bike instead of a car to get around may be applicable to a lot of people. Do you own one? Are you interested in getting one? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. Doug shared on Twitter, there's a new loan product being worked on by Connects and Park New Haven to give members of this credit union a 90-day, no payment, three years at 0% interest loan for up to $10,000 on a personal loan for purchase of an electric bike and accessories. Doug, thanks for that information. I want to bring into the conversation now on Zoom, Allie Thomas, who's assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Allie, welcome to our show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've heard advocates say that e-bikes can help more people cycle and help people cycle more. Tell us about your research into e-bikes. What did you find? So I did a small study. Um, It was a qualitative study. And so I was interviewing parents that were using e-bikes, e-cargo bikes in the San Francisco Bay Area. And yeah, that's what I found out is that, you know, and I've also from different research, I've studied and looked at different studies in both United States, Canada, and also Europe. That, you know, once people started getting on the e-bikes and seeing that, like, okay, if I'm a little tired, I can use an assist, um, they did more um, exercise. They were out more. They were in better mental health. There's been studies that look at e-bikes and, you know, health issues and how that's helped people mentally as well as physically just doing more in general. We heard Kate mention when I asked about, you know, safety concerns uh, when we're talking about having the children on an e-cargo bike and places where there's maybe better bike infrastructure. 
Yes, I think like, you know, as Kate was also talking about too, is that she had confidence when she was on her bike because it is a bigger footprint. And that's what I also heard echoed by a lot of women in my study. Um, And, you know, that's often an issue for people is that the confidence and feeling safe on the streets and being able to, you know, like she said, get up to speed faster. And so I think it's also helpful having that electric assist. You can can also choose safer streets or, or streets that you feel more comfortable on as well. Um, what I saw from like my studies that the parents were like, well, you know, if I don't want to take this one road, cause I know in the afternoon it's a little bit busier, I can take another road and not feel like, oh, I'm too tired or that road is, you know, um, steeper or anything like that. When we think about bike friendly cities, yeah. often we're talking about uh, cities in, in Asia and in Europe, uh, but, you know, models that, you know, transportation planners, even in the Northeast can look to to make more our cities more bike friendly, not always the, the impetus on, um, you know, educating bicyclists, but the fact that, you know, motorists who take up our roads and often think that the roads are for them, Allie, you know, how do we how do we uh, confront that? Well, I think it, it goes into road design, and this has been a, a new topic, not really a new topic, but it's more of a hot topic within transportation planning and engineering is like, you know, we blame a lot on like the motorists, but maybe we should be looking at the road design itself and the spaces that we, you know, set aside for pedestrians, bicyclists, and um, motor vehicles. And I think, you know, a friend of mine um, at Berkeley did a study looking at, you know, what do you know, motorists want, what do bicyclists want, what do pedestrians want, and they want it to be a clearly marked road. And when you have clearly marked bike lanes, and it's, and even if there's a physical, you know, barrier too, that also helps the uh, motorists know, okay, you're going to be over there, and I'm going to be over here. Um, I think road design is one part. I think, again, um, education is one part. I think it's also enforcement, though I don't want to use enforcement too much, because it can be um, political um, and it's not evenly distributed in terms of who gets enforced and who doesn't. But I do think that when it's made clear that, and also speed limits, I think that's another thing I forgot to mention. You know, when I talk about street design, it's actually, you know, the physical, but there's also the speeds that we're driving at and how that's enforced. Um, I know in the place that I used to um, study, um, Davis, California, one of the things that's really um, an integral part is that it's a low speed um, area. So it's 25 miles per hour within the city, whether there's going to be people, pedestrians, bicycles, et cetera, you know, and also having bike lanes or, you know, bike paths that, you know, circumvent the city that, you know, are just as, you know, fast getting to where you need to go. So there's all sorts of ways that you can improve the environment. And, and also there's a thing called tactical urbanism where people put up temporary or pilot different things to show that like, actually it can work. And when you do have this, you know, segregation of uses on a street, things flow faster because if we're not going into each other's lanes and it's very clearly demarked, you know, things move faster for everybody and everyone feels safer on the road as well. And for my friend's study, Rebecca Sanders, she did a study on a, you know, heavily trafficked road. And what she found was that motors were like much more comfortable knowing that bicyclists had their own space, that bicyclists, you know, had a physical space that was separate from theirs and they felt comfortable as well. Um, And so I think it's a thing where it's not a bad thing to have bike lanes because I think it makes it clearer for even the motorists. And it's also, again, a thing of understanding, you know, that, there's no, the other thing I also would put out too is oftentimes we like to look at bicyclists and their behavior and say like, oh, you know, these bicyclists, they don't follow the rules. Well, you know, we all don't follow the rules. Let's be honest. You know, are we all driving the speed limit? You know, are we always putting on our signal? 
you know, we're human beings. And so I think it's just because oftentimes the bicyclists are in the minority that we look at their behavior and go like, oh, you know, they're terrible. But let's look at it in terms of like overall population. Um, maybe it's one or two that may not be following the rules, but it's also understanding that we do all share the road. And I think it goes back to what um, Senator Haskell talked about, options. Like having bike lanes doesn't mean that you have to give up your car, but it does mean you have an option. Having a sidewalk also means you have an option. And if these are smaller, you know, trips you're doing, particularly on the weekend, you know, maybe taking an electric bike might be something better for you. And then, you know, again, you're more safe or comfortable in your neighborhood. It just means that you have an option. And I think that's really important. And Allie, I wanted to fit in a quick call. Uh, Ken mm, from Hartford, sure. who is an e-cargo bike user. Uh, Ken, what did you want to share related to what Allie has talked about right now? So I, I electrified a, a Yuba Mundo cargo bike, and I bring my daughter back and forth to school about four and a half, five miles round trip on, on relatively uh, heavily trafficked arterials. And I've had many parents at the school uh, talk to me and say, oh, my you know, you're the one who who my kid always talks about and say, I want to ride my bike to school. But I think there's a, a gap um, for parents. And I feel like there's a knowledge gap for parents is what I should say. And I feel like it, it should be the school and the uh, state's responsibility, like the Department of Transportation and the Senate and other people in, in positions of decision-making authority can create programs to help educate parents and I think that the school system is a great way in which we can train parents on how to safely use cargo bikes because kids want to be on them. My, my daughter absolutely loves being on the bike, even when it's cold out. And, you know, <clears throat> she says that her friends in school tell her, we want to ride a bike, too. And, and there's only two parents at, at, at this school. Um, shout out to Jay Holt uh, from NPR who <laughs> rides his cargo bike to school. Uh, we love we love Jay. <laughs> Ken, you bring up some good points. Yeah. Thank you for calling in and sharing your experience, but also uh, the, the the public uh, education uh, piece of this as well. Um, because we're talking about e-bikes and again, uh, the people that are choosing to use them, but also ways to make it more affordable and accessible. We wanted to bring in another perspective with us now on Zoom is Matt Shell, who's owner engineer of Spark Cycle Works, which is an electric bike manufacturing company in Branford. Matt, welcome to our show. Hey, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me on. So tell us, you know, uh, you know what sparked uh, your shop, uh, so to speak, and uh, you know, what, who are your customers? What are you seeing in terms of how these e-bikes are being used daily? Yeah, well, uh, Spark's goal was really to get more people in New England considering electric bikes. And so when we looked around um, just our city roads, we found that things were a little bit dangerous and we needed to create an option that was going to combat that. And so we took a look at a lot of different ideas. And the main thing that kept on coming up was we need a little bit more speed right now. Um, so the bike that we have been working so hard on goes about 30 miles an hour. So it's a little bit faster than your traditional e-bike, but that allows us to keep up with more traffic. Um, this was a goal just to be a transition to e-bikes. We know that there's a lot of areas around the country, you know, who are using e-bikes that have a lot of bike paths. We're just not there yet. So we needed an option that was more high speed. Um, but as time went on, we started to see an interesting demographic appearing. So we have a line of, you know, $1,000 to $1,500 e-bikes. And we started getting a lot of folks in, you know, 
Maybe they had knee issues. Maybe they wanted to transition to an e-bike for a, a five-mile commute. And um, it was just its a very exciting time. But we're now getting more and more people considering this 30-mile-per-hour e-bike. Mm. Uh, we talked to Senator Haskell earlier about uh, this uh, rebate program. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on um, this and, and helping it make it more affordable to residents. It's, it's really great. I mean, when we started the company... Um, you know, there was a, a tax incentive on e-bikes and that kind of disappeared and it made things much more difficult for us to do. And, you know, that combination with the 25% tariff for importing some of our electric motors and batteries, you know, we just have to keep on raising our prices and it became more and more difficult to provide options for people. So when we saw them talking about this rebate program, it was incredibly exciting. Yeah. I wanted to take uh, some callers now. Uh, Aram is calling in from New Britain. What did you want to share, Aram? Yes. Um, I just wanted to share. I'm originally from Israel, and I visit often. And uh, my recent visit, I walked through Tel Aviv, and it really has been transformed uh, through uh, electric bikes. Um, the, the, as your uh, experts say, you know, the, uh, now they marked all the... Uh, uh, bike routes and and uh, in many uh, main streets they put dividers. So uh, I mean the the city is humming with uh, um, electric bikes, and I think it takes over less much less uh, um, you know cabs and so on. So and on every corner you see a bike store, you know, an uh, electric bike store. So uh, that's exciting. I, I don't know what's the situation in other cities in Europe and elsewhere, but um, it certainly made a big impression on me. Now, you're in New Britain. Do you envision that New Britain could be like that, Aram? Well, New Britain does have now a lot of bike routes. And yeah. um, and um, what, what they are, I think one concern I have here is that the city refuses to put uh, speed bumps. I know that in Hartford mm. and other places. And uh, because we need to slow down as your uh, experts say, in addition to providing the, the uh, the bike routes, uh, we need to slow down the uh, the local traffic. Uh, but somehow the city believes that it's uh, it's it's not uh, a good policy to have speed bumps. And perhaps your uh, expert can tell, tell more about that. I'd be curious to hear. Thank you, Aram. Ali Thomas, do you want to take that? Oh, yeah, speed bumps? Yeah, so it, it also depends on how, the size of the speed bump because you can have some really big ones that really force people to slow down. And I've seen it used really well, again, going to Davis. Um, I think, you know, in certain areas, particularly where you're going to have um, a lot of uh, traffic conflicts and, you know, particularly if there's pedestrians, um, they're a great place to put speed bumps. And in terms of slowing down and, and stop, you know, I think oftentimes this goes back to the road design. Lots of times engineers are only looking at efficiency and flow, and they're not thinking about how many people are actually being transported, not how many cars are actually being transported. And so it's really looking at how we use the road and being efficient with how many people are being transported. And so, you know, I think it's a thing of understanding that the design is not just about, you know, speed. It's also about slowing down a little bit. It's it's okay. You're not going to be that much later, you know. 
And again, if you get into speeds lower than 25 miles per hour, if you hit somebody, they have a better chance of living, um, you know, to be quite, quite, quite frank about it. And this has been a concern because we've just seen so many more traffic fatalities, even though more people were working from home. And that's because people are going so much faster on the roads. So anything to slow it down, you can narrow the roads, you can do all sorts of things to make people, you know, uh, you know, not put their foot on the gas as much. That's Allie Thomas, assistant professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill. Matt Shell's also with us, owner engineer of Spark Cycle Works in Branford. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Today we're talking about electric bikes, e-bikes, and how policymakers in Connecticut can encourage adoption through rebates or subsidies. And these efforts could increase e-bike accessibility for women and low- to middle-income individuals. My guest, Allie Thomas, Assistant Professor in the Department of City and Regional Planning at UNC Chapel Hill. Also with us, Matt Shell, owner and engineer of Spark Cycle Works in Branford, Connecticut. Uh, Matt, I wanted to go back to you. I know you submitted testimony to the legislature about safe bike travel spaces that are lacking in Connecticut. I wanted you to talk about uh, your perspective. Yeah, so I mean, this is really just going back to, we were just talking about speed. This is one of the reasons why we put our efforts into into the moped design right now. And it, it really comes down to, you know, a lack of safe riding places in the state. Um, in many towns around here, we, we barely have sidewalks for people to walk on. Um, and the breakdown lanes where you traditionally will ride a bicycle are very narrow. Um, so when you got, you know, about two or three feet to ride your bike on a 40 mile per hour road, things can be a little scary. And those are the roads that most people are going to be taking to get to work around here. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a major concern. And I mean, we've been seeing New Haven and some other areas do that, but, um, we're going to need more help connecting the suburban, uh, communities to those cities where people are commuting to work. Braden's calling in from New London. Braden, what did you want to share? Oh, uh, well, I think it's great to have, you know, these uh, subsidies and things for electric bikes. But as uh, as both of your guests have been saying, the infrastructure needs to improve. And if you, it's sort of like if you go in the other direction, if you make bike lanes inviting and safe people are going to look out the window of their car and go you know i should try riding to work mm. there's this beautiful bike lane and something i think almost everyone in connecticut can uh, uh understands what i'm saying if anyone has driven i-95 i live in new london and uh the north side bridge that would be the south side i-95 bridge is five lanes long now I-95 itself is only three lanes or even two up in this part of the state, but they've got five lanes. It's this ocean of asphalt going over this bridge. And then what most people don't know is that there's this little tiny bike lane. It's about four feet wide. I tried riding over it once. It is 
terrifying. It is so skinny. It's not the traffic that you worry about. It's you worry about, you know, skinning your knuckles if you if you don't ride in an absolutely straight line because the barriers on either side are right up where your hands are. And two of the lanes, as I was saying, of these five lanes are exit lanes. Now that could easily be turned into one lane and give another over to a bike, a bike lane, a full-size bike lane. And in a place like New London, where our economy is split straddling the Thames River, we have New London on one side and we have Groton on the other. And Electric Boat, which is you know the, our biggest industry, occupies both sides of, of the river. And if we had a good bike lane, there might be people who actually thought, you know what, I'm going to ride my bike this time or my e-bike from our headquarters to the factory or something along those lines, not to mention how the Coast Guard and the Navy are straddled across. If we had, in other words, if you build an appealing infrastructure, people are going to see bikes as a solution, as opposed, sorry to make an attack here, but if you think, gee, I need a faster e-bike so that I can go out and ride in traffic, that that doesn't hit the mark to me. I feel like we need to look further forward in how we're designing things. In New London, we're doing a lot of new density downtown, but I haven't heard the town talk mm-hmm. at all about improving bicycling. Well, Braden, let me get the, the let me get the guest to respond to, to your point. So thank you, Braden, for your call. Matt, I wonder if I can go to you first, because he mentioned the speed of e-bikes. Um, and again, I had mentioned earlier when we think about this uh, e-bike conversation, helping more people cycle and help people cycle more. And yes. how, you know, the way that the e-bikes, uh, you know, uh, might um, propel people who you may never want to try to take a a longer commute in a traditional bike. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, I mean, first off, I I don't want to say that that all e-bikes should be going 30 miles per hour. Uh, What I was saying before is as a company, we were looking for a way to help New England transition. And it seemed like if we could do something that could go a little bit faster, that would help us transition while the infrastructure was getting built. So I, I just hope that makes a little bit more sense. There's absolutely a huge room for, for lower speed e-bikes. In fact, they'll be the vast majority will be the minority. Um, but one thing I did want to say, I, I really liked his comment about providing a more inviting environment for people to ride e-bikes. Um, because I think one thing that is often overlooked because we get just so focused on the legislation and numbers um, is just purely the fun aspect of this. So I I worked in, my first job was working in a regular bicycle shop. And I I can tell you, I sold a lot of bikes to people who thought they were going to get the bike. They were going to go out every single day. It was going to be a great thing. And then it just didn't end up working out. I I can tell you, e-bikes are very different. It's it's a very fun activity. And so not only are you going to get exercise from it, you're going to save a lot of gas but it is, it's a ton of fun to do as well. So if, if the roads are inviting and it's a fun activity to do, you're going to keep on getting more and more people who are going to want to transition over to it. That's, yeah. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Ali Thomas, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I, I wanted mm-hmm. to, to go back to you. Maybe mm-hmm. when we think about uh, this, this vision for mm-hmm. e-bikes uh, and also, again, making them more affordable and accessible, uh, what did you want to mm-hmm. leave us with? Well, I just want to echo what Matt said, because I think that's one of the things that came out a lot with my my study on parents is that it was fun. 
and the kids enjoyed it. And I think also, you know, again, echoing him, sometimes when parents are really tired, knowing that, you know, oh, I could bike again, you know, because I have this little assist and people were doing it more. And one person told me a story about how people kind of commented on his bike you know, it's electrified. It's not a real bike. He's like, but these guys spent like $10,000 on their carbon fiber bikes. And maybe if it's raining, they won't bike, or maybe they're too tired. He's like, I bike every day. And I think that's the thing too. And I agree with the caller. Yes, please invest in the infrastructure. There are economic development benefits to having a better roads and where everyone is sharing the roads. If you've got sidewalks and bike lanes, you've got more ways that people can come to your downtowns or your businesses. And I also wanted to say to the previous caller about the role of the school. You know, what I found was parents were teaching parents about e-bikes and the schools were hosting, you know, exactly what Kate was doing, which is like testing e-bikes, because once you get on the e-bike, you really enjoyed it. And, you know, again, going back to Matt, it's really important e-bike shops, growing those small businesses. They've been, you know, in San Francisco when I was doing this study, this was back in 2015. It was New Wheel e-bike shop that was really, you know, promoting e-bikes and coming up with ways to finance them. And it was, you know, the San Francisco Bike Coalition as well, testing e-bikes and showing people how to, you know, bike on um, roads. We can't just depend on the government. It's got to be a lot of top down, bottom up working together for this. I wanted to share some comments we got on social media. Lena writing, one of my pandemic projects was building an e-bike to keep the cost down. It was fun, but it was a learning process. Not everyone has the patience to do the same, but a rebate program like Cheaper, which we talked about earlier, would help make e-bikes a reality for so many more people. Uh, Matt, I think uh, we're running out of time, but I know that you've also brought up in your testimony to the legislature uh, the ability to also... um, to recycle uh, bikes and make them into e-bikes. That's something that you you hope to see um, take off as well? Yeah, that's a a whole other interesting topic. Um, If you look at uh, countries around the world who have been, you know, huge into e-bikes, specifically China, there has been a recycling problem that has gotten a little out of control. Um, most of those bikes that are having the recycling problem were used in rental systems from companies that went out of business, but there is a significant number of people who have had regular bikes. You know, everybody probably has at least one regular bike in their garage. And if you buy an e-bike, well, what's going to happen to that bike? So, um, and this isn't just bicycles, actually. A, A very interesting example is the Honda Cub. This is the, the best selling, you know, scooter in the entire world. So, Matt, we'll probably have um, to leave it there. Can we have you come back and you can tell us all about it? <laughs> yeah, sure. That's fine. Matt Shell, thank you so much. Owner engineer of Spark Cycle Works in Branford. Also here with us, Allie Thomas, assistant professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Thank you, Allie. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Katie Pellico on the phones today. We'll be back tomorrow.